On this edition of FedGov Today with Francis Rose, safety at sea to solve the merchant marine's people problem. And the telework debate cranks up a couple of notches on Capitol Hill. It's Thursday, September 14th, 2023. Welcome to FedGov Today with Francis Rose. The new edition of FedGov Today TV this week debuts on ABC7 in Washington and live on the FedGov Today YouTube channel this coming Sunday morning at 1030. Customer experience is a focus point in the new updates to the president's management agenda. Lauren DeYoung-Shulman of OMB will join me on this week's show. You can always find the FedGov Today TV show on demand on YouTube and at FedGovToday.com. The current edition of FedGov Today TV covers a lot of ground about people. The Merchant Marine Service is dealing with some of the same people problems the rest of the government is. Rear Admiral Ann Phillips, U.S. Navy retired, is administrator of the Maritime Administration at the Transportation Department. She explains why the people problem is her biggest issue right now. Not too surprisingly, uh, we share some of the challenges that the other services share and that are, you know businesses and, and industry are sharing across the country right now, which is we need more mariners. And uh, we need more mariners now at sea uh, serving our country and uh, in helping us to ensure our economic and national security needs are met. Uh, and to do that, we're really focused on working with industry, working with labor, working with our stakeholders across the maritime diaspora and, uh, and developing ways to recruit train, retain, and reduce barriers to people coming into the industry and staying in the industry. So that's thing one, people. We're all about people, and I can talk more about that. And thing two, uh, maintaining our ready reserve fleet, uh, again, to ensure that we have the capacity to meet the needs of DOD, of the Transportation Command, and General Jacqueline Vanovas and her team, uh, to ensure, again, our nation's economic and national security needs are met. So very busy on both fronts, uh, in addition to the Port Infrastructure Development Grants that you talked about, and we're about to start uh, round two of those grant opportunities this year. We'll be announcing them later this fall. Regarding people, you talked about reducing barriers. What are some of the barriers that aspiring mariners experience, and how can you and your team help go about uh, reducing those barriers? I think first and foremost is getting the word out. The maritime industry is hiring. These are excellent jobs that do not necessarily need a college degree. Uh, you can pick your opportunities, you can sail the seven seas if that's what you want to do, or you can work commercially in our U.S. flag uh, coastal fleet, our Jones Act fleet. You can serve on rivers, you can serve on coastwise vessels, uh, you can sail internationally. There are lots of choices for you. We need licensed mariners and unlicensed mariners. It's a good job with good benefits, good pay and job security because there is a tremendous need right now. So what we're doing is focusing on reducing uh, barriers to people coming into the industry. And I think I should call out exclusively, we're really focused on safety at sea for all mariners. Uh, we have developed, uh, of course, there have been some, some incidents that have been reported in the maritime industry recently. They've made the news. You're, you're quite well aware of them. Uh, in 2021, the Maritime Administration and DOT introduced a program called Embark, which at the time was a program and a policy. Every mariner builds a respectful culture to try to get at and reduce uh, bullying, assault, sexual assault and sexual harassment at sea. That program, thanks to Congress, has now become law. And in the 2023 NDAA, that program uh, now has the force of law behind it. And we really are focused on changing the culture of the industry to ensure that we are valuing mariners based on their capabilities, their professionalism, and their skills, and, and reducing and eliminating any threat to, to perceived or real to their safety across industry. So. Um, 
Lots of work to be done there. We're really excited about it. We thank Congress for their support. We work very closely with the Coast Guard and with our carriers and our labor unions uh, to implement this program. I should note that we have, as of today, 19 uh, of our U.S. flag carriers signed up for this program. That means they have sexual assault prevention and response programs in place. We do do audits, we do do checks on them, and we thank them for their willingness to take this step to ensure safety for all mariners at sea. We focused initially on cadet safety, safety for our Merchant Marine Academy midshipmen and other midshipmen at sea, but really this is for safety of all mariners at sea. And in that context, reducing barriers to entry. So that if people have heard about this and this is something that's a detractor for them, you know, 7% of the industry in this country is women. We'd like to have more women at sea. Those women want to know that they're going to be safe. And they want to, anyone who wants to join the industry wants to know that they're going to be safe at sea. So this is really important work that we're doing. In addition to that, providing more opportunities for people to join the industry, uh, to find ways to get into it, to help uh, get access to joining a union, going to a union school, and learning to sail and, and have that opportunity to make a career here. So um, a lot going on. We have a Centers of Excellence program in the Maritime Administration as well that helps identify educational institutions that specifically focus on the maritime world. And we're very interested in continuing to build that program. It's had an authorization for a grant to support it, no appropriation yet. So we're optimistic. How do you measure success in a program like the Embark program? How do you know that you're moving the needle in the direction that you want it to go? Well, that's a great question and I thank you for it. I've been in the job just a little over a year. Uh, during that time, Merit and Embark has gone from being a, uh, a policy to actual law. And what I would say is, what I have seen over the course of my year, and of course all credit goes to Lucinda Leslie, my previous deputy administrator, and the team that put this policy and this program together, uh, but my current deputy administrator and I, Tamika Flack, uh, we are seeing a difference in the way that industry approaches this, and we are seeing a difference in the way that, that our unions, that our maritime unions are approaching this. Uh, we owe a, a law, a uh, regulatory process in support of this uh, law. We all owe a rulemaking, and we have labor now asking us for that rule. When is that rule going to be in place? We want to make sure that we're enforcing it and that we're seeing it enforced in places where we place our mariners. Uh, labor and carriers both understand that if you want to get people and you want to bring them in and keep them, you need to give them a quality of life that they have come to expect. So you want good working conditions, you want internet, one of the most important things, internet access, but you also want people to know that uh, they're valued, again, based on their professionalism and skill, that they have a future in the industry, and that they have a future with your company. So we're seeing companies realize, hey, uh, it's easier for me to attract people if I provide better services to them. Uh, I'm already providing good salaries, but what's their life at sea like? What's their rotation like? How consistent are their... Um, opportunities for them to move up within the within uh, either my company or within their their union so uh, so we're seeing a lot of change there and I have to say when people come in and talk to us and the carriers come and talk to us we just hosted a meeting with carriers we have a quarterly meeting on Embark so they can tell us what they're seeing and where they feel like they need help where we should make tweaks to the process uh, carriers when when Inevitably, when they come in and talk to me now, they're very concerned about the Mariner shortfall, but they also tell me the things they're thinking about to improve the circumstances that they have control over. To me, that's a big change. I mentioned we work very closely with the Coast Guard in this. Of course, they have law enforcement authority, elements of the Coast Guard Act of 2023 also dovetailed nicely and, and support the Embark as Embark supports the Coast Guard Act. Uh, so they are seeing more reporting. 
uh, to them, that means people have confidence that if they say something has happened, they will expect action and they can expect action. So this is a positive step as well. And I should add that under the new laws for the Coast Guard, any uh, master that learns of a sexual assault or harassment incident, uh, even if it's hearsay, is obligated by law to report within 24 hours. That's a big change. Uh, the Coast Guard has taken that responsibility on wholeheartedly. So we're, this, this is not easy. This will take years. But we are seeing a change in attitudes, and I think that's tremendously positive. And thank industry, labor, and many stakeholders for being a part of it. You can watch the entire conversation with Rear Admiral Ann Phillips, U.S. Navy retired of the Maritime Administration, on demand at fedgovtoday.com and the FedGov Today YouTube channel. Several federal agencies are increasing the number of days each pay period employees have to come into the office. The White House is asking agencies to, quote, aggressively execute back-to-office strategies this fall. President Biden's chief of staff, former deputy director for management at OMB, Jeffrey Zients, calls in-person work, quote, critical to the well-being of our teams. The House Oversight and Accountability, Government Operations, and the Federal Workforce Subcommittee called four agency leaders to testify today about their telework posture. The four leaders are Karen Marangel, the Chief Operating Officer at the National Science Foundation, Robert Gibbs, Associate Administrator for the Mission Support Directorate at NASA, Dan Dorman, the Executive Director for Operation at the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, and Randolph Alice, Deputy Undersecretary for Management and Senior Official performing the duties of the Undersecretary for Management at the Department of Homeland Security. The first member of the subcommittee to ask questions of the panel after opening statements was Representative Gary Palmer, Republican from Alabama. There was a recent survey uh, from the Office of Personnel Management said that only one in three federal employees are fully back in the office. And uh, I'm just wondering, uh, in, in your agencies, what uh, Mr. Dorman, you, you, you just uh, said that you've reduced office space by 28%, and then you said it will be reduced by 50% by what date? Sir, for our regional offices, 2025, that's based on the lease turnover, so the opportunity to make those reductions. So this is nationwide, not just here in D.C.? Yes, sir. What are your space reductions in D.C.? 28%, sir. 28% in D.C.? Are those employees still living in the D.C. area, or are they allowed to relocate to other cities? Those employees are still in the D.C. area, sir. Okay. Um, I, I would like to know um, from each of you just a very quick answer. Uh, it's a percentage. What percentage of the D.C.-based federal employees in your agency relocated out of state during the COVID-19 pandemic, Mr. Ells? If you don't know the answer, just so you don't know the answer. Yeah, sir, so I would have quick. to get the answer back to you. I would appreciate if you'd respond to the committee. Yes, sir. Uh, Dr. Marangel. Uh, we currently have 175 employees uh, located outside of the DMV, but I would have to get back to you on the amount of who relocated from who was here prior Wait, to the pandemic. Please do so. Mr. Gibbs. A similar answer, I'd have to get back to you with the statistics, but I will tell you that we have restructured, so while some of our employees are not in D.C., they are working at other NASA centers. Okay. Uh, and uh, Mr. Dorman. It, similarly, we'll have to get back to you with specific details, but uh, we, we did have, uh, we, we, like NASA, we have employees. It, I, I, need, I need to move on. Uh, and what I want to know is, and, and this is a yes or no, have any of your employees uh, relocated outside of D.C. Uh, uh, 
uh, during the pandemic or after the pandemic? Have, have any of your employees relocated outside of D.C.? Uh, yes, sir, for DHS they have, and they were required. Well, that's to good. Just okay. uh, Mary Gill. Yes, sir. Mr. Gibbs. Yes. Mr. Dorman. Yes, sir. Okay, what I would like to know is uh, D.C. Uh, employees get locality pay. Are, has their pay uh, uh, been adjusted to reflect the change in locality? It has for DHS. Yes, sir, for NSF. Yes, it has for NASA. Yes, sir. M Mr. Dorman. Um, one of the things that concerns me, Mr. Chairman, about where we are on, on this issue is President Biden issued uh, a declaration saying that the federal workforce would return to office. And uh, shortly after that, though, there were uh, the locations of federal of 281,656 federal employees were redacted. Uh, in addition to that, the uh, names of 350,861 employees uh, were also redacted, which I think uh, causes a serious problem in terms of oversight. Uh, that's um, an, about $36 billion in salaries and bonuses that um, are not subject to oversight. It will be very difficult for us to exercise oversight. And in the last uh, year of the Obama administration, only 20, the names of only 2,300 federal employees were redacted. And there are some federal employees that, whose names need to be redacted because they, they serve in and sensitive positions. But I'm, I'm concerned about where we're heading uh, in terms of the federal workforce actually for showing up for work. And, and not in regard to your agencies, this is uh, uh, a statement uh, about a couple of other agencies. One in particular is the EPA, where a recent survey found that 80% of the EPA employees said that they would experience personal hardship if the agency changes its work policies and requires them to show up for work. That's unconscionable. Uh, in, in addition, apparently somebody thought that was funny, but um, in addition, the EPA is now trying to hire another 2,000 people. And I just, I know the EPA is not here, and hopefully they will show up later, Mr. Chairman, yeah. uh, to answer some questions about this. Uh, th this is a problem. And it's, um, we've, we've heard reports of VA employees who, or doing their work from a bubble bath, or people going out and playing golf and playing pool and going to happy hour. I don't think we can, can have um, the productivity that we need to have if you don't show up for work. And if, and if we don't need you here, then we don't need all these federal buildings. And uh, Mr. Mafumi, uh, I think if, if you got several hundred thousand federal employees who are not showing up for work, we shouldn't have the traffic problems. And uh, so I, I do think this, this should be a bipartisan issue, by the way, that of what we expect of the federal workforce in terms of showing up for work. Would my friend yield real Absolutely quickly? to my friend. The fact that we have congestion means federal workers are going to work. That's the largest source of employment in this area. And I can tell you as someone who commutes every day, uh, the difference between now and the depth of the pandemic is night and day. It, it takes me now an hour and a half to get to work. In the depth of the pandemic, it took me 25 minutes. So I mean, the congestion Mr. Mufumi faced is a reflection of the fact that federal workers, in fact, are showing up to work. Thank you for yielding. Well, with all due respect to my friend, and you are my friend, that's not necessarily a reflection of the federal workforce showing up. It may be a reflection of the infrastructure issues that the city has and has had for many years. 
And, uh, and not necessarily everybody in those cars are federal workers. They're people uh, working for in other businesses. But I do respect uh, your, uh, your opinion on that. With that, Mr. Chairman, I'm happy to yield back. Representative Gary Palmer responding to a point from Virginia Congressman Jerry Connolly at that hearing of the House Oversight and Accountability Government Operations and Federal Workforce Subcommittee just today. The reference to traffic was because of a comment from the ranking member of the subcommittee, Maryland's Kwese Mfume, at the very beginning of the hearing. He was late because he was stuck in traffic commuting from his home and district in Baltimore this morning. Congressman Connolly's questions came toward the end of the hearing. He started with a comment directed to the chairman of the subcommittee, Congressman Pete Sessions. I thought you made a really thoughtful distinction that I want to reemphasize between universal remote working in a pandemic and a structured telework program. Those are two very different things, and I really appreciate the chairman making that distinction. Yes, sir. Not all of our colleagues do. Um, and, and, and by the way, it's bipartisan. I mean, I, I heard the mayor of Washington conflate the two, you know, bemoaning empty offices and empty, you know, shops and restaurants. Well, she looks at the results. Yeah, but that's not caused by telework. We had robust telework before the pandemic, and those offices were not empty, and those shops were doing bustling business. Um, and so we, we've got to separate the two. And I think our four witnesses today certainly did that in their opening remarks. Um, and I, I just want to really emphasize what the chairman said in his opening remarks and add my own two cents to it. Um, we need telework. We need telework for lots of reasons. For example, um, doctor, uh, would you say at NSF, as we look at the next generation of employees, is telework an expectation in the work offering when we go to make a job offer? Yes, it is. Why? Because uh, we are in a different time now today. Over, we have learned so many lessons over the past few years, and we are able to offer flexibilities to attract a, a, the best and brightest workforce, and they do expect those flexibilities. Right. And so if we want to recruit and retain the next generation, and by the way, what's your estimate of at NSF, for example, what percentage of your current workforce is eligible for retirement over the next several years? I would have to get back to you on an, on an exact percentage, but it is, it is a high percentage. Yeah, well, overall, federal government is somewhere between a third and 40%. So we've got a huge wave of retirements coming, and how are we going to replace them? And one of, we've got to be competitive. And, you know, somebody made some comment about the private sector. I, I spent 20 years in the private sector. Telework is a very vibrant tool in the private sector. They're way ahead of us in the public sector. And, you know, Accenture, AT&T, just to name a couple. I mean, there are plenty of companies that actively use telework and make it work for them in terms of productivity, morale, recruitment, and retention. Um, there was also a comment, I think, from my friend from Alabama, Gary um, Palmer, that um, uh, you know uh, there were reports of people using telework time for happy hour and pickleball and watching soap operas and washing the dog. Um, answer that. Well, I, I mean, my gosh, what what are you doing? I don't. I we don't have evidence that that's the case. I think oh, you don't have evidence. That would imply you've got a methodology for monitoring how people use telework. Is that true? 
Well, we can see from our productivity, I, it, we can see from our productivity, from the amount of vacation and, and other leave times that people are taking, those, those numbers have not plummeted and our productivity has, has risen. Um, and, I, and I don't, it doesn't square to me how you would get results like that. But I'm, I'm trying to get at something a little different. Um, telework is a structured program, right? It's not an informal, well, if you feel like not coming in today, no problem, we'll call that telework. That's not telework. Is that correct? That's correct. So in a structured program, I thought I heard Mr. Gibbs say earlier, you've got to be, you've got to be qualified, it's got to be reviewed, it's got to be approved, but presumably you're also evaluated on productivity, on checking in, on being available, right? We monitor that to know you're doing your job, otherwise we're going to rescind that privilege. Is that correct, Mr. Gibbs? 100%. And the way we look at it is accomplishing the mission, making sure the work is sufficient to accomplish that mission. Right. And we, the employees have to be trained, the supervisors have to be trained, there has to be an agreement in place that clearly rolls out, lays out the roles and responsibilities of the individuals, and it's got to go to senior level to be approved. Right. And, and, uh, uh, yeah, otherwise rockets would be falling from the skies or never get up into the skies at all. So far, NASA seems to have a pretty good track record, uh, as does NSF, as do the other agencies. I just want to end by saying it's really important and again, I appreciate the chairman's distinction because it reflects a respect. A million federal employees continued working in person during the pandemic. I lost a number of wonderful people who succumbed to the COVID virus because they went to work without protection. There were no protocols, but they went to work. And I want to make sure we honor those people. Um, and I want to make sure that as we pursue this subject and other subjects about federal performance, that we give due respect to the brave men and women who serve this country every day, in person or remotely. Um, and we, we, we should take care in our language, as the chairman did in his opening remarks, not to disparage, even by implication, uh, the overwhelming majority of public servants who care about their mission. I yield back and I thank the chair. Congressman Jerry Connolly at a hearing on telework in the federal government today. You can find a link to watch the entire hearing in today's show notes at fedgovtoday.com. I know you're really busy. You might not catch all of the podcasts and TV shows that FedGov Today offers you. If you want to keep up with everything that's coming out, you can follow the show at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your shows. And you can follow the podcast and TV show on LinkedIn, too, to get the very latest updates on everything. Hope you'll join me next Tuesday for the next FedGov Today podcast and this coming Sunday morning on TV. Thanks very much for listening.